If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, of the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, about the trooping and solitary, and ghosts who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Meryl Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore, mythology, we retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 201 of Fireside. We are well and truly in the 200s now. Today on the Irish Storytelling Podcast, we have our Christmas special. Welcome back once again to a Fireside Christmas. And we have a very special one for you this evening. Um, But for, well, it's the evening for me as I'm recording anyway. Um, for first, before we get down to that, I would like to give a big welcome to any new, any re- returning listeners. Thank you so, so much for your recent or continued support. Thank you so much to those who listened and responded and messaged me about the 200 special. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really reinvigorating, very um, exciting episode to do. It felt like it was beginning to take the podcast in a new direction and growing again. And there was so much in that story that I really loved. And I hope that had some kind of impact and resonated with you all in any way as well. So thank you so much. And it's onwards and upwards from here. We are go straight into our Christmas special. All the new normal ways you can support the podcast. You can follow me on over on Instagram at Fireside Bard. You can share this episode on your stories. Tell a friend about Fireside. You can buy my book, Garden Sea, in paperback form from the Headstuff website or in Kindle version from Amazon. Uh, you can get it instantly. This uh, will come out just a couple of days before Christmas, so it'll be too late for the Christmas orders, except some very last-minute ones in Ireland. Um, all of the Christmas orders have that have been received so far have gone off, so they will be there in time for Christmas. Um, but if you are looking for a post-Christmas present, if you didn't manage to get in time, or you're just looking to support the podcast or interested in the book, Garden Sea, My Neomyth of Home, is still available. And thank you again to all of those who continue to buy it each and every month. Uh, thank you so much. It's a great, great joy. It never loses the impact to receive those orders and to send them off, whether it's to a neighboring county, my home county, the UK, or further afield to America or Australia or New Zealand or wherever else. Uh, so thank you so, so much. And I I look forward to the next new place that I get to send it and to share it with someone else and share it with more of you. If you're not interested in the book, you can, of course, 
support the podcast directly uh, by joining Headstuff Pod, Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com where for as little as five euro a month although you can pay more if you want you can gain access to not just bonus material for Fireside but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network but enough of those hard sales the story for this week I'm recording to you still from New Zealand um, we are just about to head to Christchurch in the morning on the South Island for our last two shows, so I'm recording this the night, uh, the night before my last two shows in New Zealand. We've had an incredibly, incredibly special time touring around the country with the world of musicals. It's an absolutely magnificent, magnificent country. I've loved touring around it, and I've loved experiencing it with the cast I've been working with, and very much look forward to coming back to this incredible place. And the show has gone down very well; it's been very successful. Um, but I'm very, very much looking forward to going home for Christmas as well. Christmas at home is the ultimate cure for a post-tour, post-work blues, um, especially considering I haven't been able to spend Christmas properly at home for three years, really. Last year I was working over in Dubai, and the year before that I was at home, but I was doing a storytelling gig in the K-Club on Christmas Day itself, so I had to travel away for that, got home for dinner, but you know that if you're able to be at home for Christmas and you're happy to be at home, then there's there's nothing like just being able to go and home and and switch off and just enjoy the time and that's what I'm very much looking forward to do. So we fly home on the twenty second. Very, very long few flights. I think our first flight is eighteen hours to Dubai and then about another seven or eight hours from Dubai to Dublin. So everything crossed. So keep uh keep your prayers and your thoughts and your well wishes to the other folk all in uh, your fireside bard's favour as he flies back home flying home for Christmas um, but with that in mind when I was developing and thinking of ideas for a Christmas special because it's been summer over here which don't get me wrong has been magnificent and it's been lovely to spend winter in the summer but it's very hard to feel Christmassy over here I'm not doing a Christmassy kind of show and even if you go into shops it just doesn't have that same feel of of being at home if you're from a country that is wintry at Christmas there's no comparison to that, I think, or certainly that's my preference. So it's been hard to get in the spirit. I haven't been watching any of the materials or the, the films or anything. But what I did do was I re-listened to an audiobook of A Christmas Carol, which will always be the standard, the classic, and one of my personal favorite books of all time. And it's a book that's very special for me because I was in a production of it in Dublin um, just before the arse fell out of everything in the world uh, at the end of 2019 and the start of 2020 at the Gate Theatre, which was one of the, the most important shows I was ever want, uh, a part of, certainly probably the most credible or high-profile thing I've ever got to be a part of, to be a part of a really, truly historic theatre in, in Irish theatre history and just to be with a truly, truly incredible cast and team working on that and at a very, very special time. And so that really, and it was an incredible ad adaptation by Jack Thorne as well that has been done a thousand times in London. I think it was written originally for Risa fans to star as Scrooge, but I adore it as an adaptation. And growing up, the quintessential Christmas movie for myself and my brother has always been A Muppet Christmas Carol, which you may laugh, you may love it, but it is considered one of the more faithful adaptations of Dickens' work. Essentially, all of the dialogue and all of the, the narration in it that isn't inherently Muppety, shall we say, is almost 
always lifted directly from the novel. And so when I first read the novel itself, which was probably about 10 or 12 years ago, it started to become a thing I revisited a lot because it's very short, for example. You can basically read it all on Christmas Eve or in the couple of days leading up to Christmas. And the version on audiobook that Audible that I was listening to was the Hugh Grant version. And Hugh Grant, I have to say, he doesn't get enough credit for his voice. He was an incredible narrator and storyteller for it. And so that just made me think that it being the quintessential ghost story, not even just Christmas story, but the the breadth of folklore and just the mastery of prose and of storytelling in Dickens' work just felt like it was the right time to do something from A Christmas Carol. And I decided to focus entirely on it because I didn't want to just do a passage out of context. I wanted to essentially do the entire first chapter of A Christmas Carol. It's only spin to five chapters, but that was naturally going to be quite long. It was going to be about three episodes worth of Fireside in length if I was to read it all. So I decided rather than doing a passage, I very humbly attempted to edit this myself. It's been a, a, an extremely edited story throughout different interpretations and different productions, which is a very, very difficult task because it is essentially word perfect. Every line in it carries the story forward. Every line in it has become incredibly iconic, whether in one adaptation or a thousand adaptations. So when I was trying to humbly do this, I was just trying to entirely think of it from an audio point of view and the fact that I am reading it for you. And I decided I was making decisions when I was cutting. I never changed anything just where I could streamline it. So I decided like what was the clearest version of it that I wanted to tell for my purposes here. This introduction is very long, but I suppose I wanted to give more context to it because more be some people might be saying, why is he doing this? But we had touched on it before when we did the story of the goblin who stole the goblins who stole a sexton, which was the story that Dickens wrote that inspired this. But now it's time to get into the the real deal itself. We will chat a bit more about it, of course, afterwards. But this is a Christmas Carol on Fireside. A Christmas Carol, being a ghost story. Of Christmas. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadliest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country is done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. 
Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully caught up by the sad event that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge and sometimes Marley. But he answered to both. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. A merry Christmas, uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with, Humbug! Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be? returned the uncle when I live in such a world of fools as this. Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a brown dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. 
He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your way, and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew. But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come round, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely, and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. I wonder why you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, uncle. Come. Dine with us tomorrow. Why did you get married? said Scrooge. Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love, growled Scrooge, as if that were the only thing in the world more ridiculous than a merry Christmas. Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, but I have made the trial in homage to Christmas and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So, a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon, said Scrooge, and a Happy New Year. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word. Notwithstanding, he stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There's another fellow, muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. My clerk, with fifteen shillings a week, and a wife and family talking about a merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself, and in a more facetious temper than was usual with him. At length the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill-will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tactily admitted the fact to the expectant clerk at the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. "'You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose,' said Scrooge. "'If, if quite convenient, sir.' "'It's not convenient,' said Scrooge. The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge, buttoning his greatcoat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. 
The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers, and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. Now it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. And then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It wasn't angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled, or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy, would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause with a moment's irresolution before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door, except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he said, Poo, poo, and closed it with a bang. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Humbug, said Scrooge, and walked across the room. After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his hat back on the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with the chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, and soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun, together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when without a pause it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. The same face. The very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, 
the tassels on the latter bristling like his pigtail, and his coat skirts and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was so transparent so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. How, how, said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. What do you want with me? Much, Marley's voice, no doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then, said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for a shade. He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... Can you sit down? Asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it then. Scrooge asked the question, because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said, a dreadful apparition. Why do you trouble me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again the spectre raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. I wear the chain I forged in life replied the ghost. I made it, link by link, and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, 
pursued the ghost. The weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself. It was full and heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, the ghost replied. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole and weary journeys lie before me. Oh, captive, bound, and double-ironed, cried the phantom, not to know the age of incessant labor by immortal creatures, for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hand again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. It held up its chain at arm's length, as if that were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. Hear me, cried the ghost. My time is nearly gone. I will, said Scrooge. But don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob. Pray. How it is that I appear before you in a shape that you can see, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. It was not an agreeable idea. Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. That is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. 
look to see me no more. And look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. The apparition walked backwards from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him not to come nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear. From the raising of the hand, he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters, and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist, or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window, and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug stopped at the first syllable, and being, from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. the year comes to a close, we just wanted to thank all our listeners for tuning in to shows on the Headstuff Podcast Network throughout 2022. We'd especially like to thank all the fantastic Headstuff Plus members who have supported their favourite podcasters to keep doing what they love to do. You can join hundreds of fellow supporters on headstuffpodcasts.com and get access to loads of bonus content. From all of us here at Headstuff, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And there we have chapter one of A Christmas Carol on Fireside. And I certainly hope you enjoyed it. It's just um, it's just an absolute cracker of a tale like that. Even uh, doing quite a bit of editing on it. I think I 
I cut about four or five thousand words from it, but still pretty much kept all of the beats of the the story. But yeah, to anyone who might be lesser familiar with the Christmas Carol or lesser familiar with the book, having seen movie versions of it, or even people who know the book really well, um, I hope I hope you all enjoyed some aspect of that. What uh, I suppose I'll talk about what resonates with me and also I was quite interested in the editing process of this because I hadn't really done an edit job like this because usually I would just take a passage. The first thing I actually edited more so was when I did the Sleepy Hollow. So originally the idea was I always wanted to do was Marley's Ghost because Marley's Ghost is my favourite scene in it. It's my favourite piece of the book. It's my favourite like lines all come from that, all come from Marley's Ghost. And so while taking out little bits of description and prose and a couple of little back and forths. I've kept that pretty much as is. But then again, it's all about the context of it. And even though you very quickly get that, even if I'd just gone in with with Marley's ghost, you get very quickly, very clearly that this was Scrooge's old business partner and that obviously he is dead. Um, But when one of if not the most iconic line of Christmas Carol. Well, probably the most iconic line is God bless us, everyone. But pretty much up there is Marley was dead to begin with. It's one of the great opening lines in literature. And that entire first passage has a huge humor to it. And my favorite thing about Dickens' prose is he writes it very much like a storyteller. Dickens, as a narrator, is a character in his own stories. He's not omnipotent in any way. It is just like he is recounting this from recollection or stories he has heard. And that's why I took out... He has a couple of other bits. I've I shortened the opening passage a bit, but one bit I, I adored that I that you don't see in any movie adaptation of it uh, because they rarely have Dickens as an narrator in it himself, with the exception of the great Gonzo playing Charles Dickens in A Moment Christmas Carol, of course. But even Gonzo doesn't do this passage, which is where he talks about how he doesn't believe that being dead as a doornail is the most dead piece of ironmongery that's really a coffin nail. And that that little linguistic diatribe is, is something I, as a, the word geek uh, is something I absolutely adore and imbues it with a casual nature that I think is what has allowed Dickens to, uh, allowed him to achieve such popularity at the time and also to endure that I think he's sometimes criticized for like being a bit too pedestrian or whatever, but I don't think there's many people who are greater than, at prose writing for storytelling's sake than than this guy and I think there's no better example of it than that opening passage. So it really, like, there's no better setting of a ghost story and this almost humorous reminder that that Marley's dead and this, he talks about this idea of, like, you know, you need to know he's dead and you need to remember he's dead or else this won't be scary or this won't make sense to you in any way. And so then we carry on. It very much starts instantly and the nephew comes in and the nephew's, chapter is very or section is important for me for two reasons like number one is that i feel you need to meet scrooge first of all and see him at his day-to-day business and see him with his clerk bob cratchit but also you get the nephew as this total antithesis to scrooge he's warm he's kind he's poor he 
to Scrooge is the one who has far more reason to hate Christmas than he does because Scrooge is rich and secure. But they are totally at opposition to each other, bound by this family sense, or certainly the nephew feels bound and feels the effort to reconnect and constantly make the effort with his uncle. And so it's really nice seeing the the Christmas spirit, the generous Christmas spirit, even for a moment in Fred, before we see the consequences of Scrooge's miserly nature. I also just love the nep- nephews of for a very biased reason, because that was the character I played in A Christmas Carol. And I was very, very fond of Fred. He, I found him very, very challenging to play, actually. Um, but the fact that I got to do all my scenes pretty much with Owen Rowe, who was playing Scrooge, who's one of the greatest Irish theatre actors ever. And um, he was an incredibly generous and kind and really, really funny guy to work with. And it was a huge, huge thrill to work with him um, and to get to do scenes with him. But my favourite scene every night in the show... um, was was the Marley's ghost scene and Marley's ghost was played by an incredible incredible actor named Simon O'Gorman and he also played uh, Scrooge's father in these flashback scenes that we did and uh, Katie Davenport incredible costume designer and set designer did um, Marley's ghost came out in a diving bell he was wearing this huge massive scuba suit with this huge chain behind him and visually it was something I that will stay with me forever. And I think I've always loved the Marley's ghost scene and loved the dialogue and the prose of it, but that just cemented it in my brain as my favorite part of one of my favorite stories. So then we, of course, get straight into it where Scrooge is confronted with this with this ghost and we get this huge moralistic nature to it then. And some critics of A Christmas Carol have pointed that it's almost just like entirely... It's like, is it secular and inspired by, you know, folklore and other ghost stories? Or is it just like this Christian allegory of like why we should all be terrified of not leading good lives and not leading good Christian lives, you know? But then I like, I don't think because it can get quite moralistic with it. And like, certainly to me, kind of, I think it is scary and it's scary, but like this real consequence. And but I don't think it gets too Christian allegory because like it doesn't say Scrooge will go to you know, hell and burn forever. It's kind of this worse in a way level of, of limbo, of purgatory, where you're physically being weighted down by these the chains of these sins and crimes you formed in life. And the worst of all, and the thing that like, was really most disturbing to me, again, something you don't see as much in visual representations of this story, is all the other ghosts when Marty floats out at the end. And you see just like the sky filled with people and Scrooge knows so many of them and this image of this man. The, like the scene at the end, like I nearly cut this out, but then it, I just kept it in because it just stuck with me so much. The image of this one man with a safe hanging around him, crying because he's unable to help a woman and her child freezing in a doorstep. That this remorse, uh, I heard Christopher Hitchens recently talking about um or like an old thing naturally of him uh, of him talking about the difference between remorse and regret which is like which is regret is for things that you've done but remorse is for things that you haven't done and these are just these incredibly remorseful beings that are unable to be saved but Scrooge 
can be saved and there's the hope there in this there's obviously hope for scrooge but i always like to think that there is some hope for marley's ghost that the idea of if he can save scrooge or allow scrooge to save himself that that might alleviate his passage and so if this was somehow or for any reason was this um an introduction to the actual book or of this story you know or if you hadn't read it in a long time or if you've just seen a movie of it i like i really hope that this will encourage a couple of people to read the rest of the book if they haven't done so or hadn't done so in a long time because it it is a magnificent story just and if you're a fan of this podcast i don't think there's anything in it and just his mastery of prose and description and his visceral very almost like germanic words that just like really get these images of these characters appearance and personality across is obviously incredibly interesting and very educational for me as a writer but also like as a performer to get to wrap my lips around these words uh, we had a chorus in of sorts in a christmas carols so that was where we did a lot of these narration parts but they were divided um, a lot between us and some of us were on stage for some bits and some not for others and so it was wonderful to revisit obviously Fred the nephew's lines that I did and the lines that are in this that weren't in the adaptation I did or lines that I of dialogue of prose narration that I had done and others that I hadn't um, just to get to really revisit all these lines and visit these lines for the first time and I have to say the primary point of this was I'd always wanted to share the story, but was to get myself in some kind of spirit of Christmas. And it has certainly done that. And I hope it can to all of you. So it was it ended up being quite another long one, but I hope you don't mind that. I hope you get to listen to this by a fireside over the Christmas break at some point and that this can give you a bit of warmth. Um, and I hope that everyone out there does have very safe and pleasant obviously very happy christmas i know this can be a very difficult time for a lot of people who maybe don't have as good a relationship with home or can't go home or have to be away or any of the other infinite difficult situations that people can find them in this can be a time that exacerbates that when it's a time associated with you know family and togetherness and you know materialism and the pressure of buying presents and spending time with people like it's a huge amount of pressure and um it's something that we should never take for granted and there's a lot of more uh, like uh, appropriate people to talk about any of this stuff than i can but that's just i will just say that much at least um and as always yes i hope that this podcast can just be a little bit of light a little bit of an ember in anybody's day or anybody's christmas time um, and so I think there's nothing better to leave with than that. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this. I hope you all have a very happy Christmas um, wherever you're spending it around the world. Um, next week, might take. Um, I probably won't take a, a, f- a week's break. I probably won't take the time off. Um, but we will see where we'll go on to that. I think we're going to have a folktale, an Irish folktale about the Lake of Healing, which is one of the old uh, folktales that I was had lined up before i went to new zealand and um, but did the maui episode instead so i have that one to go or i might go in another direction i haven't actually written that one yet that will be when i get home because i will be flying home in a couple of days 
So this will be the last episode recorded in New Zealand, for the moment at least. So one more time, all the usual things. Uh, follow me over on Instagram at Fireside Bard. You can buy Garden Sea in paperback or in Kindle version. All the links are in the description below. You can support Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com. Uh, I will see you all. You'll hear me all next time. One more time. Have I hope you all have a great Christmas, a happy holidays, um, and a happy new year. Um, if it's not if it's not out before then, but it should be. It should be before. Um, it should be like the twenty eighth or twenty ninth, but we'll see. Um, I, I will see you all. You'll hear me all. And remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. 